0: Timothy chapter 2 is where we'll be. We'll look at verses 22 um, through 26 this morning. Um, You may not know this about me, but I am a very introverted person. And that might be a shock for some of you because you see me up here and you see how I'm kind of a spaz. I use wide hand gestures and maybe yell a little bit. And uh, although I am a passionate person, it doesn't mean that I am automatically this extrovert Um, And I think how you define an introvert and extrovert is how we get our energy. And so I I don't get my energy from people. I get my energy in solitude. And uh, some of you might get your energy from people. And so this kind of event, like coming together, really excites you and it gives you energy. And, you know, you leave like really, you know, high on energy, but I'm the opposite. I am drained. And so like two services. And then if we ever have something throughout the afternoon, I typically have meetings with folks. And, uh, and when I get home, I am, I'm, I, like Sundays, I am spent. Like, I want to watch football and eat wings and, you know, maybe play a, a violent video game and, you know, kill people or something like that. I just want to get, you know, just the release, you know, of energy. I mean, the other day, I'm in my, my, my boys are starting to get, my, my youngest, uh, Gideon, is starting to get my rhythm of, of Sunday mornings. And he said, dad, uh, uh, um, when you get home, you know, you and me and Finn, we can watch football. I'm like, I love this kid. And, uh, and, uh, and then my wife says, uh, well, Gideon, what, what am I going to do? He says, I don't know. You'll just have to do laundry or something. And I was like, (laughs) I was like, you're not going to get married. Um, And so, look, he did not hear that from me. All right, I'm just gonna be. I just said, hey, you don't talk to your mom like that. Just call, you know, just a, she's gonna watch football with us, and you're gonna do laundry like so. Um, and so, but uh, that's that's my rhythm. I, I just like to kind of slow things down. My week is uh, so, Thursdays. My big preparation day. I work a lot of my sermon then, and like that's my dream. I have a shed in the back yard in my house that's so insulated and so I can sit there with a, you know, I, I light a candle and I play uh, Spotify. I know, look, you can make fun of me if you want, but this is how I do it. And so play a Spotify mix that I made myself and, you know, just real chill music that calms me down and just sit there and I think, you know, deep thoughts. And this is my tendency. Um, and so here's, here's why I tell you that. Uh, I tell you that because it, for me, it takes a lot of work to be others focused. It's not my normal tendency to be immersed in the lives of other people. However, I don't really have a job that offers that type of tendency, do I? Like I have to work hard to love. I have to work hard to love people. And so uh, this is something that the Lord has been dealing with in my heart for a while, that Ben, you have to have, community with others. You have to learn what it means to be others-focused. And so in order for, I believe, anyone to have an effective ministry, and that's not just a pastor, that's anybody, we have to learn how to love others. Some of you, it's easier than others, but some of you, it takes a lot of hard work. I've met pastors who, young guys in their 20s who want to plant churches and they want to pastor. And I always ask them, you know, I often ask them, why do you want to be in ministry? And they often say, well, I want to preach or I want to use my gifts in this way. And I always ask them, do you love people? Because you got to love people to have an effective ministry. Now, I met a guy a few years ago that had been a part of a ton of churches. And every former church of him, he was of his, he was either fired or he left with some great division or dissension. And I remember he, he came to me and asked me, I was, we were just a few years in of planting, and he said, you know, I'm thinking about planting a new church, And which by the way was just a handful of people from his last church that were all angry at his last church. And he asked me, I asked him, I said, why do you want to plant? Why do, what, what's your desire to plant? He says, well, I'm working on my PhD, and my dis- dissertation is going to be in this new church planting model, and so I'm going to use these people to help with my dissertation. That's the reason why I want to plant. I'm like, wow, that sounds exciting. They're going to love that, you know. I, I was just like, hey, man, I, and I told him, I said, these th- these people aren't your science experiment. They're not lab rats, you know. You've got to love them. You've got to learn how to love them. And and, I challenged him, I said, you know, what's the common theme of all these places that you've left? It's you. You're not a guy who genuinely loves people, which means I'm not sure that this is a good fit for you. You need to be a guy who fights hard and works hard to love people. And so here's the thing. Uh, all of us are called to that. If we want an effective ministry, which hopefully all of you do because you live your life to be a missionary wherever you go, wherever God might have you, you want to live your life as a missionary. So in order to be a a, a successful uh, minister of the gospel, which if you're a believer, all of you are, we have to know what it means to love people. And so the big idea that I have this morning is how to have an effective ministry through loving others. Now, this is what Paul has been laying out in 2 Timothy chapter 2 uh, through what telling Timothy, this younger pastor who's pastoring the church that Paul had formerly pastored it's the church of Ephesus, and he begins to unpack to him in in chapter two what a faithful minister of the gospel looks like. And so he starts in the first part of chapter two of this is a guy who works really hard. He sees himself as uh, a good soldier. He sees himself as a hardworking athlete who follows the rules. He sees himself as a hardworking farmer who toils the land and then he goes even further down that he rightly handles the word of god that's that's in the verses before 22 and then he begins he starts challenging Timothy with this idea of okay not only is he this hard worker not only is he a guy who rightly handles the word of god but he's also a guy who walks in repentance and he challenges others to walk in repentance as well and that's where we pick up in verse 22. He says this to young Timothy, so in order for you to be this faithful minister of the gospel, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So this is what Paul is telling Timothy. He's saying flee from youthful passions. And what we said last week were youthful passions are basically the way that you and I, before we met Christ, used to be. It's the way that we used to be. He's saying, fight against your normal tendencies of the way that you used to be before you met Christ. Now, I want to tell you that this, there, there must be a distinction because. Every believer should be able to recognize the way they used to be and the way they are now. In other words, a true believer must have a genuine heart change when they met Christ. That's a believer. And, and if you can't figure out, okay, this is the way I used to be, and this is the way that I am and there's no distinction between those two things, then perhaps maybe your life has not been changed. Most likely, your life has not been changed by the gospel, And so this is why Paul is telling Timothy, hey, remember who you used to be and flee from that person. Now he's not talking about a person who's perfect. That's certainly none of us would be qualified if that were the case. But he's saying, uh, remember who you used to be and fight against your normal tendencies. Fight against the flesh. And this is encouraging because as I think about my own life, I'm, I'm not who I want to be. But praise God, I'm not who I used to be. And this is what Paul is telling Timothy. And last week, we said this. We said that this is a person who's repentant. This is a person who isn't just moving away from sin, but they're moving toward a godly lifestyle. But notice the way that Paul describes this godly lifestyle. He says says at the end of verse 22, he says, he, he walks in this way that he walks along with those who call upon the name of the Lord from a pure heart. And basically what Paul is saying is this. We can see a repentant person by how well they display love for other people. In other words, true repentance leads to a heart change that then leads to loving other people. And everyone who has in this room multiple children know that this is true. How many times you said, tell your brother you're sorry. I'm sorry, right? <laughs> I'm a hug, side hug, you know. How do you know that they're really sorry? There's brokenness, there is a restored relationship. We, we, okay, we deal with the two boys, Finn and Gideon. They come in, they're fighting, they're angry. Gideon's red hot angry. Finn's trying to make up a story that's not exactly true about what's happened. And we're trying to work through, okay, tell your brother you're sorry. And then when we see that level of brokenness over what happened, but here's what we also see. We see a relationship that is restored. We then later, an hour later, sometimes, sometimes the next day, um, We hear laughter in the other room. We hear them playing well together and sharing things together and loving each other. Why? Because this repentance has happened between them. They're then reconciled to to each other. And so this is exactly what Paul is communicating. Hey, Timothy, if if, if a person is walking in repentance, if you're walking in repentance, your desire then is going to be like God who's to love others. Your desire is to to restore relationship, your desire is to walk in this way. And so how does, how does he encourage Timothy in this way? Well, then the next thing he does, is he talks about not just this restored relationship, but also how we communicate with each other. That's verse 23. He says, then have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies you know that they breed, what's the word? Quarrels. okay? So here's this problem that consistently has shown up in the church of Ephesus. Paul mentions it in in chapter one. If you flip back to chapter one of uh, 1 Timothy, um, he talks about false teachers. And in 1 Timothy chapter one, verse three, he says to Timothy, I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may Charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and to en- endless genealogies which promote speculation, rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. And so, what's happening that in chapter one, even in chapter two, this issue has not been laid to rest. There are people who are who are having quarrelsome speech, they are getting into arguments for argument 's sake now we don 't know exactly what the disputes were, but apparently there were people who were looking at the Old Testament genealogies and they were trying to find like sort of hidden mystical, special messages by looking at the genealogies. I remember when I first moved to Greenville, uh, I was invited to an event called um, a, a look at Christological astrology, and it was how we could come together and we could look at the constellations and by the constellation patterns we can then find a hidden message, a special revelation that 's not in the Bible about jesus and I was like, and that angers me okay when I see that i 'm like oh like not true. You know, I just get really bent out of shape. And so I saw it, I was like, no, like, how do we know who Jesus is? We read scripture and, he, and that points us, that illuminates his person and word. We don't, we don't see hidden messages, but what happens with hidden messages like that? Well, it becomes a speculation. It becomes a guessing game. It becomes subjective. Well, I think it's this. No, I think it's this. And I think it's this. What happens? Vain, arrogant disputes happen. Um, you, you began to have vain discussions. And Paul is telling Timothy that to be an effective minister of the gospel, he ought not carry this type of bravado. He's not a quarrelsome person. This is why we can't be bullheaded about an issue in Scripture that it's not clear on. Like, anytime you see someone who is certain when Jesus is going to return, run, all right, run, because whatever you do, don't give money to that person, okay, because they're wrong. You know why they're going to be wrong? Jesus said, they're going to be wrong. You'll never guess when Jesus is going to return. But sometimes you just see these people, well, he's absolutely going to return on this date. And uh, look, we're going to put the billboards up, just spend all your money. You look at that guy who did it last, that Harold Campion guy. Um, and like he, he later recently passed away. Like he still doesn't know when Jesus is going to return, right? Even if, he, even if he's in heaven, he still does not know when Jesus is going to return. Like no one knows when Jesus is going to return. And people who end up following that kind of stuff and they dedicate their life to, Jesus going to return on this day. What ends up happening? Well, they're distracted and they're derailed from the gospel and the great commission. They get sidelined from the mission of God. Therefore, they breed quarrels. And this is why Paul is saying, don't do this. How about the people that argue? There's one translation of the Bible it's the only translation, if you don't read this translation, you're missing out on God's special revelation. I even had a guy one time challenge me with my translation of the Bible. What translation do you read? I said, ESV. He said, Peter and John didn't talk like that. I said, What translation do you use? The KJV, the King James Version. I said, I don't think they spoke in old English either. I'm just saying, right? And so, like, like, here's the thing. Are they good translations or are bad translations? Yes, there's a lot of good translations. There's a lot of bad translations. But here's the thing. When I meet Christ in heaven, when I see him face to face, I don't think he's going to be like, by the way, you use this translation. I'm a little upset about that. I, I just don't think it's going to come up, right? I just don't think it's going to come up. Because why? Because Paul says it's, he says, have nothing to do. With foolish, ignorant controversies, you know they breed quarrels. Now, can I just talk about social media for a second? Like, can I just can we just read this and talk about social media for a second? Because I think when we are as we are approaching the election, people are losing their flippin' minds. I mean, I am often embarrassed by the posts that I see represented by views that I agree with and I disagree with. I'm imp- I am often embarrassed because of the, from professing Christians, this sarcastic, self-righteous, belittling arrogance that often shows up on social media and it angers me. I, I think that social media is a place where Cowards all of a sudden feel like giants. And sometimes I meet people with these massive Facebook personalities and you meet them in person, they say like two words. Like you used to have to earn the right to be heard in this country, but now people immediately get a platform where they have a voice and they have people that can listen to them or at least read what they say. By the way, if you say more than like 10 words, I ain't read nothing you say, all right? But that's the culture that we live in. And I think that social media can be a a great platform for the gospel where you can connect to others and have a real relationship, like actually meet them in person and talk with them and interact. I know that's a foreign idea, but I think it could create that. But what happens is that it often becomes a, a platform where people are ostracized and offended. And I see Facebook statuses of professing Christians and I go, don't you know that you might have, or you most likely have non-believing friends who are reading this and they already think you're nuts before you even have a chance to sit down with them and share the gospel? I mean, don't you see that? I mean, I just don't understand it. You might say, well, that offends me. Well, it's not like you're gonna tell me to my face. You'll post it later, but tell me to my face. We'll talk about it in person. Like, but that's what I see all the time. Why, what is that? What's, it's exactly against what Paul just said. He says, listen, have nothing, nothing to do with foolish or ignorant controversies. He says, you know they bring, breed quarrels. Paul's saying a pastor, a minister of the gospel doesn't have time to waste with nonsense. And don't forget the context. Paul's saying this to a pastor. He's saying this to Timothy. Now, everything we're going to see here next is going to show us that we're all accountable to this, but pastors were even held as a higher regard in this way on this issue, a higher standard on this issue. This is why James chapter three, verse one, he says to a, a suffering church that not many of you should become teachers. My brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. And so notice what Paul says next. This is, okay, this is the pastor. This is the way that he's supposed to be. He's not to breed quarrels. He's not to be in foolish or ignorant controversies. But then he goes on in verse 24. He says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to some people, kind to the big givers, right? Right? Kind to the best volunteers? No. Kind to everyone. Able to teach. Patiently enduring evil. Correcting his opponents with gentleness. Now notice what Paul puts an emphasis on in this issue with Timothy. He reminds Timothy who he is. He says this in verse 24. He says, the Lord's, what's the word? Servant. You know what that word actually is? In Greek, it's slave. The Lord's slave. The person who lives only for Christ and Christ alone. Now, Paul uses this word several times, even when Paul, when he even talks about his own relationship with God, the way that he describes his own relationship with God, he says, I am a bondservant. I am a slave. I'm bound by Christ. He is my king and he is my Lord. That's the way that Paul Describes it, And then he's telling Timothy, don't forget the same thing. He is your king. He is your Lord. You are his slave. What that does is it takes the entitlement right out of the ministry. If you want to be a person who really wants to make an impact on other people, you got to see this first. In order to even love other people, you got to see who you actually belong to. You belong to him. He is your king, you are his servant. You are his bondservant. You belong to him. This is what Paul's drilling into the mind of Timothy. So whatever ministry that you are in, whether it's just Maybe some of you are actually in a vocational ministry. Maybe some of you are just ministering to the person next to you at work or the person that's next to you in class or your roommate or maybe someone in your neighborhood. Know that you are a servant of him first. You belong to him. And then he says, okay, if that's true about you, then realize the people that God has entrusted to you, this is the way that you're supposed to be to them. You're not... Quarrelsome. In fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, when he talks about the qualifications of an elder, this issue of not being quarrelsome, not getting into arguments for argument's sake, he says this in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, when he goes over the qualifications of an elder or a pastor. He says, This is a trustworthy saying. If anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer or a pastor or an elder, whatever word you want to use there, must be above reproach. The husband of one wife. He's a one woman man. He's sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable. He's able to teach. He's not a drunkard. He's not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. There it is. Not a lover of money. And then it goes on to, How this man then leads his household, how he loves his wife, how he is in the community. But notice what it says. He's not a quarrelsome person. And that's something that Paul is talking about. He's saying, this is not a man who's always trying to pick fights. Someone who's always looking for drama. Someone who's creating controversy for the sake of controversy. No, Paul says that this man is kind. To everyone, and he is also, you notice what the the phrase that buds up to kind to everyone, able to teach. And I think there's an importance there because these two go together because they play off of each other. In other words, a quarrelsome pastor who uh, will never earn the right to be heard, a quarrelsome pastor who's always trying to fight and bring dissension isn't going to earn the right to be heard. How, are, how is it that we earn the right to be heard? Well, we have to have the reputation of kindness and grace. And This doesn't mean that the pastor is a pushover. Paul says it this way, and this is why he says it this way in, in the next part. He says, he is patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. So Paul's guaranteeing two things. If you're a pastor, you will endure evil and you will have opponents. The gospel is an offensive message. Paul says it elsewhere that it's the stench of death to those who are perishing. That's what it is. So if you proclaim the gospel, you are going to have to endure evil and you are going to have opponents. And the reality is, I've told you guys this before, but in high school, college, nicest guy in the world. Like my nickname was Tuggy, right? Nicest guy in the world. Tuggy, man, he's awesome. He's friendliest guy, funny, great to sit at the lunch table with, doesn't stir up any controversy, nothing, right? Easy going guy. Didn't have, I think I had one enemy in, in high school, and that guy was just, he was a jerk. I'm just going to be honest. Like, that's it. Just one guy, all right? One enemy. To college, got along with everybody. I mean, I think I won like some kind of award for like, um, what was it? Like friendliest guy in the dorm room award or something like that. It was ridiculous. And like, but when I became Pastor Ben, you have enemies because you preach the gospel. You proclaim the word of God and it's really offensive. So I've been a pastor. I've been insulted, I've been cussed at, I've been mocked at, I've been yelled at, I've been on a few occasions physically threatened. i have never, never forget a couple of times I've been physically threatened. I was at a wedding one time and the father of the bride said, what are you sharing at the wedding? I said, I'm sharing the gospel before your, you know, your daughter comes down. He said, I ought to slap you in the face for making this thing about Jesus It's about my daughter. And so I've I've never been told something like that until I became a pastor. And I'm not up here saying my life is hard or feel sorry for me. No, I'm trying to show you that there's a price to be paid for preaching the gospel and proclaiming the truth of God's word. So Paul's intent is for Timothy to endure well. He doesn't want Timothy to lose himself In ministry, that this stress would take a lot of things out of you. Recently, I just a poll was taken with about a hundred, several hundred pastors regarding um, a pastor's health, and I'll just read some of the the statistics because it just shows you how much opposition can weigh on a pastor. Only twenty-three percent of pastors report they are content in Christ. Or in their church or in their home 23%. 90% of pastors work between 55 and 75 hours per week. 50% don't believe they meet the demands of the job. 90% were surprised because pastoral ministry was different than they thought it would be. 70% of pastors constantly fight depression. 50% are so discouraged they would leave the ministry altogether. Marriage and family, 80% of pastors believe that ministry has a negative effect on their family. 80% of spouses believe their husbands are overworked. Inside the church, 70% of pastors feel like they don't have a close friend or someone they can confide in in the church. 40% feel like they have at least one serious conflict with a member of the church at least once a month. Ministry longevity, 50% of pastors who are in the ministry will now not be in it five years from now. One out of 10 pastors stay in the ministry until retirement. One out of 10. 4,000 churches begin each year. 7,000 churches close each year. Over 1,700 pastors leave the ministry every month. 1,700. Why? It's because of what Paul's saying. The opposition, the conflict, it can own you if you don't have the heart to really love other people people and to love Christ more. When you preach the gospel, and I don't care if you're a pastor or not, when you preach the gospel, you will be attacked. Now, by God's grace, I don't feel like I'm in the majority of these statistics, all right? I just want to say that. I'm very happy here. Love my family, love my wife. I've got a wonderful network of other believers, brothers in Christ who are pastors that shepherd and and challenge me on on a weekly basis, and I'm thankful to God for that. But Paul is telling Timothy this, when you're attacked, you're to keep your cool. You're not to let this thing get to you where you lose yourself. Now remember, Paul is telling this to Timothy and Paul is the same guy who in scripture, in the book of Galatians, he confronted Peter to his face. He, when the, the same guy who, when the Judaizers said that, circumcision actually makes you a better Christian. Paul told them and used very crass language and said, if that's true, emasculate yourself. Paul's this guy. Paul's the guy who said, when he talked about his Jewish pedigree, he called it dung. Paul's the guy who in um, 1 Corinthians calls out a person who's in sin by name. Paul's the guy in in 2 Timothy, when he talks about false teachers, He calls them out by name. And so Paul, he tells Timothy to be kind to everyone. But Paul also has this other reputation of being this guy who's tough. Because here's the thing, being kind to everyone does not mean that you are easily run over. In fact, Paul is the guy who calls sin, sin. and He didn't cover it with flowery or churchy language. But Paul also recognizes where grace comes from. And this is why in the book of Romans, he says, it's the kindness of the Lord who brings repentance. And sometimes being kind is saying the hard thing, but what sticks to you, and, and when you even look at the qualifications of an elder, it's what sticks to you. What is your reputation? Is your reputation an unkind person? Is your reputation this person who runs over people and belittles people and holds the office in a, in a way that... Um, talks down to people. Is that who you are? No, it's, Paul says it's not who a minister of the gospel should be. That's why the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 15, verse 1, it says, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word it stirs up anger. And so although the pastor will get challenged and stretched over and over again to say the hard things and the press, the heart issues, ministers of the gospel, every person who shares the gospel on a regular basis, we should be people who extend grace in a way that turns away wrath and it doesn't stir up anger. This is what Paul focuses on next in verse 25. He says, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of truth, that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Now, those who are in opposition to God's work, whether they know it or not, they are under a demonic deception. And Paul is saying, by you being honest and truthful, but kind and gracious, perhaps they will see the kindness and the, gracious, gracious, uh, the grace of our Savior, and perhaps that would lead them to repentance. Now, no, now what's interesting about what Paul is telling Timothy is this. The character of God's servant matters. Last week, I was on a plane to Florida. And you know what I didn't ask? I didn't ask, hey, what's the pilot's character like? I didn't care. I just want to know, can he, fly? Can he see well, right? I, I saw what I want to know. I mean, you don't, you don't ask your surgeon. You don't want to know that much about your surgeon's character just want to know, is he educated? Is he competent? You're mechanic. You want to know, is he competent? And all these things, they may be irrelevant. The person's character may be irrelevant to their occupation, their competency. But in spiritual matters, the character of God's servant is almost everything. And this is why Paul urges Timothy, be vessel of honorable youths. Character matters. Integrity, right? Good name. Matters. It matters. And so this should be true of all believers, especially pastors. But my question is this, who can actually do this? Like, if this is what it means to be a successful minister of the gospel who can do this. Like, have there been times where Ben Tugwell has been too harsh? Have there been times where I haven't been gentle. Have there been times where I've been unkind? Have there been times where I've been too kind? Have there have been times where I've been quarrelsome. Have there been times that I've been engaged in ignorant controversies or disputes? Yes. Yes. So who can do this? Who can do this job? Who can be an effective minister of the gospel? There's only one person. There's only one person who's the ultimate servant leader, who sets the tone for us to be servants that God has called us to be, and that person is who? Jesus. That person is Jesus. I mean, if you just look, at, if you just scan Second Timothy chapter two, and, and you look at the role that Paul is calling Timothy to. It's perfection. He's saying he says it in verse fifteen, chapter two. Do your best to present to God as one approved a work a worker who has no need to be ashamed. Anybody here ever been ashamed of the gospel? Being ashamed of God, the truth of God's word. But here's the thing: Jesus Christ could stand before the Father with no shame because he ultimately and perfectly fulfilled the Father's will. Unashamed. Look at what Paul says in verse 21 about a worker for the gospel. If anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable youth, set apart as holy, useful for the master, ready for every good work. You want to hear cleansed that way? If so, you should be up here preaching this morning. But who's done that? Well, Jesus was the perfect fulfillment of God's requirements. And through his substitutionary death on the cross, we can be made right with God and we are free and we're given freedom to live out his character every day. Verse 22 through 23, when he talks about the type of servant that we're supposed to be, this Type of love that we're supposed to display. Anyone here able to do that? Anyone here ever quarrelsome? Anyone here ever impatient or unkind? Jesus came in the fourth. Came in the in the form of grace and truth. The prophet Isaiah called him meek and majestic. Prophet Isaiah said that he was sheep led to the slaughter. He was wounded. For our transgressions, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Jesus was a perfect servant for us when he took our sins. So the question goes back to my original question we first started this morning. How can you have an effective ministry through loving others? I want to tell you, you can't. You can't. Not on your own, not on your own. You must have Jesus Christ as the model, but also must have Jesus as our power to enable us to genuinely live this life to the minister for the as a minister of the gospel to love others. Our natural tendencies aren't to love others or to murder ourselves, but through Christ we are empowered. To love others. So perhaps this morning, if we want an effective ministry through loving others, that we would start by admitting who we are without Him, and then we ask Him to empower us to emulate Him, to be like Him. Maybe for some of you, you need to say, God, at the core, I am quarrelsome and I'm divisive. Lord, help me to be uniting and peaceful like you. Maybe some of you need to say, Lord, I'm stubborn. Lord, would you help me to be humble? Lord, would you help me to be teachable? Maybe we need to say, Lord, I'm unkind. Lord, help me display your kindness, the kindness that once granted me repentance. May we need to say, Lord, I am impatient. I am harsh. Lord, help me to trust that you are in control of all things, and help me to endure evil because you endured my sin on the cross. May we say, Lord, I am quick-tempered. Help me, Lord, to keep every thought captive and have my composure of and have the composure of Christ, even when I'm an angry. I don't. Maybe that should be our posture this morning, but maybe this, this morning could be a place where we leave in confession and desire to be like Jesus, who is the unashamed workman, who is the honorable vessel, and who is the ultimate servant. Let us pray.